All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Well, as we get settled here, ready for our sermon time, if you like to follow along in your Bible or in Luke 1, find the text on page 9 of the worship guide. This is our last week of Advent, last Sunday of Advent. Um, you know, Advent is, we've been talking about every week, it's a season that we dedicate uh, toward the discipline of anticipation. We look forward to Christ's coming, his second coming, where everything that, everything that was made true when God's son came into the world, person of Jesus Christ, everything he made true will be made visible when he comes again. So we've been practicing, anticipating his coming. The way that we do that in the great tradition is by looking back at his first coming. So four weeks, this is the fourth week. Um, next week we'll worship on Saturday evening. That'll be the first week of Christmas. And I think there's two weeks of Christmas. We'll deal with that later. Um, but as we've practiced anticipating, what we've focused on is moving through the first chapter of Luke. And in Luke's Advent story, he, uh, he gives us little pictures of what God's salvation, God's salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, made true in his first coming, made visible in his second, what it's like. And I think if we were to, each week, if we were to give an ad, use an adjective to describe what we learned about God's salvation, the first week we learned that his salvation is comprehensive, that Jesus is God's plan for saving individuals, but also for saving the whole universe. It's comprehensive. The second week, we learned that God's salvation is miraculous. He came into the world, miracle and Mary. And he's still working that miracle in each of us in the church. It's comprehensive. It's miraculous. It's unifying. God's salvation brings us together. And his salvation is disruptive. It's turning the world upside down, or rather, right side up. So that's as far as we've come. Now, with all that in mind, if you would, uh, look with me at Luke 1 starting with 50, verse 57, and let's stand. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives that has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free. And he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe. Throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. 
And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness till he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. Lord, we know that you have something to say to us in it. We ask that you would give us ears to hear. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, what a story. So we've previously, we heard all, the, all about the story when Zechariah, he's a priest, he was visited by the angel Gabriel. Angel Gabriel gave him the whole spiel about how his wife, Elizabeth, who had been infertile for their whole marriage together, would be miraculously pregnant. They'd have a son, they would name him John, and that this John would become a great prophet, preparing the way of the Lord, the way of the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. We remember that story. And remember how Zechariah, uh, he asked a question, you know, how can this be? But he asked out of... Uh, unbelief. Same question Mary asked later when Gabriel came, similar type thing, miraculous pregnancy. But unlike Mary asking in faith, Zechariah asked with an edge of, maybe an edge of cynicism, an edge of unbelief, and the angel shut his mouth. Remember that? Well, this is nine months later, uh, and his mouth has been closed metaphorically this whole time, unable to talk. Some people think also unable to hear because folks were making signs to him. Um, we don't know. Maybe he could hear, maybe not. I think he could hear, but we don't know. Because sometimes people make signs, they don't know what they're doing. Anyway, that aside, uh, he has been uh, bound to silence, right? And all of a sudden, it's time for Elizabeth to give birth. All the neighbors come around. She gives birth to this beautiful boy. It's it's like uh, it's like going viral on her Facebook. Everyone in town is freaking out because she's not supposed to have babies. We talked all about that, and everyone comes together on the eighth day to circumcise the child. This is a Jewish custom, uh, just like we baptize little infants. 
uh, they would gather together on day eight and circumcise the child. And on that day, they named the child and the people were going to name him Zechariah after his dad. Isn't that appropriate? His dad can't talk anymore. We feel bad for him. This is going to honor his dad. That's what we're going to do. Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And the people say, you don't know what you're talking about. Let's ask. Look, they write her off. Ask Zechariah. He writes down, no, his name is John. And in that moment, I love how it says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free. <laughs> he is loosed. And he uh, bursts out in this prophetic word. And just like uh, Mary's song last week, this, this piece here, it's the way it's written, the way it appears in the Greek, we, we see that it's at least recorded by Luke in a poetic way. So maybe Zechariah sang this. Uh, maybe it was composed later into a song. We don't know. But for the purposes we have here in the scriptures, he breaks forth into singing. And he sings this prophetic word all about the coming Messiah that his little boy John is going to prepare the, word, the way for and the second half, he gives a word to John, which is still really about the coming Messiah. And it's beautiful. Uh, throughout church tradition, this has been known as the Benedictus. Uh, Mary's song is known as the Magnificat. This is known as the Benedictus. And that's because the first word, um, praise be, that's what I have here in my new international version. Uh, in, in the old Latin Vulgate, the first word is Benedictus. And so in various traditions, this is sung around this time. I bet somewhere, uh, many places, this Sunday, somebody's singing the Benedictus. So what I want to do is I want to look at this song of Zechariah and do what we've been doing. If there's, let's pull out one. Uh, we could swim in this for ages. There's so much here. But I want to pull out one thing that relates to us in this Advent, one truth here that I really believe God wants to show us. And it falls in line with what we've been learning. We started out, like we said, learning that God's salvation is comprehensive. And we learned that it's miraculous. We learned that it's unifying. We've learned that it's disruptive. If we're going to look at Zechariah's song, and if we were going to pull out one adjective, one word to describe God's salvation as it's presented here by Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit, what would that word be? Well, the big idea of verse in Zechariah's song is the first one, which is verse 68. That's good Hebrew poetry. It presents the main idea right there at the top. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's praising God because God has come to his people. It's an Advent thing. God came and he has redeemed them. Redeemed. Now that's a word that we say in church world. Church is called Redeemer, Presbyterian Church, or something like that. You watch Christmas movies about people who have grumpy Christmas spirit. They get, they get redeemed into Christmas cheer. Just saw one of those a couple of weeks ago. It wasn't very good. Uh, redeemed. What does that mean? Well, if, if we read in the, in the original Greek that Luke composed this in, the way that he expresses that 
the thing that gets translated to redeemed is really beautiful. Where it says that God, Zechariah sings, God has come to his people and redeemed them. Redeemed, we have one word, but in Luke's writing, in the Greek, it's two words. Uh, the first word is epoiesen, which means to make. He's using it on the aorist tense, so it's, we'd say made. Made. And the second word is lutrosen, which means liberation, made liberation. So I guess if we were to just get real wooden with this translation, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and he has made liberation for them. That hits. So if we were gonna pick a fifth adjective, his salvation is comprehensive, miraculous, unifying, disruptive. I think the Luke's word would fit best for today. God's salvation is liber liberating. It's liberating. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and redeemed them. He has come and he has made liberation for them. Now, when the Bible, especially, um, well, not especially, um, almost always, when the Bible talks about redemption, um, we want to, uh, in Luke's words here, made liberation. When the Bible talks about redemption, and the idea of redemption doesn't exist in a vacuum. This doesn't mean liberation just however we would interpret it. There's lots of ideas about liberation floating around in the world today. Uh, some of us have favorite ones. Some of us have least favorite ones. Uh, one thing we don't want to do as Bible readers is take our favorite uh, or least favorite idea of what re redemption, liberation is, and just assume that's what Luke's talking about. When we, we read the Bible, we want to read it as best we can in historical and grammatical uh, context. So Luke is writing uh, in, in, in this first century Jewish world context. And when in the Bible, when Jewish people talk about redemption, uh, almost every single time they're referring back to the Exodus event as the prototype for what it means to, to be redeemed, to do redemption, uh, to be liberated. In the Jewish mind, when you talk about, at least in, in, in the first century Jewish mind and earlier, you talk about redemption, you talk about liberation, the imaginative images that come to mind, the stories that come to mind, the context, the culture of redemption, all relate back to the big point of reference as the, which would be the Exodus event. The people were enslaved, uh, under Pharaoh in Egypt. God had promised them to make them a nation, that they would bless the world, he would give them the land, but they were not receiving those promises. They were in bondage, far away from the land, not being a blessing, under oppression, hurting, under Pharaoh. And God came in 
You've probably read the story in the Bible or seen the movie or heard about it. God comes in. He sends Moses in. What does he do? Let my people go. He miraculously leads the people out of Egypt, defeating Pharaoh in this crazy way with the plagues and the Red Sea and all of that, and leads them out of Egypt and into, well, Sinai, where he meets them and gives them his blessing and his law, and eventually on into the promised land. That's the idea of redemption, of liberation in the Bible. Key verse that first century Jewish world talk about redemption or liberation. Uh, Exodus event, and the, a key verse there is Exodus 6 6, which we've referenced here before, which says, uh, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians, I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I like that verse because it shows that God's liberating, redeeming power doesn't just happen by itself. There is a catalyst to the redemption. God redeems with something. He redeems with his outstretched arm and his mighty hand. And we've talked about before, what is... Uh, in the Jewish mind, what does the mighty hand and outstretched arm represent? Strength. God comes in and uses his strength as an instrument to unlock the oppression and set the people free. So, that's the Jewish idea of redemption. Exodus event. God coming in and using his strength to release the people lead them out of oppression and into freedom in his presence, in his land, in his kingdom to serve him. That's the idea. So Zechariah stands up in this moment and he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has made liberation for them. Everyone around him would have known what kind of redemption liberation he was talking about. Now, we've talked throughout the series that here in this time, uh, around the time that Jesus was born, it was for um, Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth, where all these people lived, uh, wasn't known as Israel, was it? No, it was known as Judea or Galilee. And these were uh, provinces of what empire? The Roman Empire, right? So these people are not living in the promised land as they would have understand what it was supposed to be from reading the Bibles. They're living on, in the geographically, yes, but no, not socially, not politically, and really not even spiritually because they're being oppressed by the occupying Romans. And before the Romans, it was the Greeks. And before the Greeks, it was the Persians, or the Persians, it was uh, the Babylonians. And before that, at least in the North, the Assyrians. All the way back to the sixth, seventh century BC, the people of God have been oppressed, occupied, 
by these foreign powers who had come in and they were dominating. People of God weren't living in the land under God's blessing as they would have understood it to be. That's not where they weren't living in the place where God had brought Israel after the Exodus. No, they were scattered across the world. Some of them lived geographically in the area, but it wasn't in Israel. It was in Rome or Babylon or Persia. And around this time that we're reading it, there was a lot of fervor, a lot of expectation, a lot of what we would call messianic hope of people expecting some kind of deliverer to come and throw off the Roman rule. This is something we learned a few weeks ago when Mary was talking about her son coming as a new David. They had this idea, which they got from the Bible, that God was going to send a, a new king, a new David. David was, uh, to borrow a, a term that was borrowed from this and to take it back, David was the once and future king. And he was going to come again, and he was going to reestablish the kingdom. And that meant kicking the Romans out. And the people expected that God was going to send a Messiah, a new David, to come and reestablish the true borders of the people of God and reestablish their spiritual and political autonomy. That's what they thought. People expected this. Now, we learn from the story of Jesus's ministry, as we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that different groups expected this to happen in different ways. Some groups thought that this Messiah was going to come and lead some kind of military revolt. True, revolu tr true revolution, true liberation comes from taking up arms. And we read stories about people around Jesus that wanted to do that, wanted to start some kind of military revolution. One of Jesus' disciples, uh, Simon the Zealot, belonged to a political extremist group that was, was kind of a terrorist, kind of a paramilitary group. He, he would have thought this. We know that there are people who thought that uh, the liberation that God was going to bring Israel through the new David was going to happen through political strategery and compromise. We read about Herod the Great and um, read about the Sadducees or even looking at history, Josephus, these Jewish leaders who tried to strike up deals with the Romans for some sort of compromised political autonomy. Some people thought the Messiah would do that. Other people thought that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to overthrow the Romans uh, and it was going to be some miraculous work that God was going to be rewarding their re religious devotion. So there were groups like the Essenes that went out into the desert and they, they tried real hard to be holy. Or the Pharisees that stayed in the city and tried real hard to be holy. Maybe God will pay attention and the Messiah will kick out the Romans. All kinds of ideas on how God was going to liberate the people. But one thing that every, I want to be careful here. As far as we could tell, maybe there was an exception here or there. But just about every uh, Bible-believing first century Jew would have expected in this time is that God was sending a new David. And he was going to liberate the people spiritually and physically from Roman oppression and from the sin problem that started this exile thing to begin with. 
They expected, like we learned in week one, a personal and corporate savior to come. A new David, maybe even a new Moses. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen refers to Moses using that Greek word, utrosis, as a liberator. So this is the environment. So when Zechariah prays, bless be the Lord, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and he has redeemed them. Do you hear the the not just the spiritual but the but the but the physical and even political overtones of that? Now, Zachariah's time, this was totally culturally accepted. In our time, it's a little weird. Um, you know, pastors, church leaders, we're we're just supposed to talk about the spiritual part, right? <laughs> And wasn't it the case that all these first century Jews who thought that Jesus was going to come overthrow Rome, weren't they wrong? Didn't Jesus come to do just a spiritual work? And, you know, they tried to get him to overthrow Rome, but he wouldn't do it. Wasn't that the case? Well, if we look at Zechariah's song, we, we get a, a, a prophetic overture, if you will, almost a, a roadmap of what the Messiah, what Jesus, how he's going to come and liberate. The liberation ideology uh, of the gospel. He, he maps it out. If you go to a symphony, you know, you can go and listen to hours long of an orchestra playing beautiful things. But one thing some people don't know, and I didn't know for a long time, is if you go to a symphony, the first piece the symphony plays is called an overture. And in the overture, they go through and they hit the major themes of the symphony. So if you want the shortened version of a symphony, you can just sit through like the 12-minute overture and then leave. And you got the idea of the, of the symphony. This song is like an overture to the gospel. And this song, we get the major themes of God's liberation, redemption plan for his people outlined. And Zechariah speaks this in this politically charged context. So what would it, his hearers have heard? And what would we, we have a politically charged context. We have a culture of not talking about things like that. What should we hear in this? This Advent, what, what do we need to hold on to believe about Jesus being a liberator? Well, three quick things. Here's the first one. Zechariah's song shows us that God doesn't give liberation through ideologies. He gives liberation through a person, Jesus. God doesn't give liberation through ideologies. He gives it through a person, Jesus. First thing we need to know about gospel liberation is it doesn't come from a way of thinking. It doesn't come from a philosophy. It doesn't come from a political platform. It doesn't come from a set of practices. It doesn't come from a worldview. It doesn't come from education. All of these things can and very often are wonderful, but none of them can liberate you. None of them can liberate the world. God's liberator is a person. 
We have to understand that. Listen to Zechariah, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us uh, in the house of his servant David. Horn of salvation. If you have the NIV like I do in an app or a Bible, there's a little footnote that says, horn here symbolizes a strong king. That's really helpful. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, often on the king of Israel or of Judah is referred to as the horn. And that's not like a horn that you blow, like the horn of Gondor or something like that. No, it's like a ram's horn. And uh, if you think about yourself in Israel, there's lots, lots of sheep around. And uh, I didn't know this until like, like, like two years ago. But did you know that ram is just a male sheep? I didn't know that. I thought it was a whole different thing. It's just a male sheep. So there's rams around. Now, sheep are gentle lowly peaceful creatures right now when there's a ram they got these giant horns when the ram lifts his horns up in the air do you know what that means it means that they're about to attack you and and they're real strong so that whole thing that that image was often attributed to god's anointed king he is the horn of salvation he is God's people. When God lifts the king up, that means that, that the, the, the peace in the kingdom, it's, it's like this, he, he is God's, uh, well, I think you get it, God's strength. So praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. He's come to redeem his, uh, to his people and redeem them. He's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. As he said, through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Okay, who brings righteousness and holiness so the people can serve God? Who enables the people to serve him without fear? Who delivers people from their enemies? The Romans. Who does that? Who keeps the promise to Abraham? Who uh, causes God to remember his holy covenant? Who keeps the people from the people who hate them? Uh, who is this? What is this? Is it their religious devotion? No. Is it their political affiliation? No. Is it the way that they educate their kids? No. Is it the way that they do social welfare? No. Is it any of these things? No. What is it? It's the horn of salvation. It's God's man. It's the new David. It's a person. So Zechariah wants us to know that God's liberation comes through a person. Now, this is really important for us because we, uh, just like people in all times and places, we tend to look for our liberations uh, in all the wrong places. We tend to look for it in those classic politics, social programs, education, relationships. We can add things like... Um, uh, uh, things that we hear about maybe in our culture, like adopting a way of thinking or um, just getting the right job or partnering up with the right person or whatever. These things can be good. Folks, none of these things, nothing in the world could ever set you free from your deepest 
uh, bondage, your deepest fears, your deepest anxieties, or even your external real life enemies that persecute you and hurt you. None of these things can ever do it. Only Jesus can give you true liberation. So that's the first thing. Second thing, Zechariah teaches us, um, God doesn't save us. God doesn't just save us from our current oppressors. He saves us from the root of oppression itself. So God's plan of salvation is not, an, God's liberation is not an ideology, it comes through a person. And God doesn't save us from our current oppressors only. He saves us from the root of oppression itself. Listen to Zechariah, verse 71. He says that salvation is coming, they're getting salvation from their enemies and from all who hate them. That would be the Romans. In verse 74, he says that God is coming to rescue them from the hand of their enemies. That would be the Romans. To enable them to serve without fear. So those are the current and external oppressors. But then in verse 77, he says this, that God is coming to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That's the root of oppression. So when you go out and you pull weeds in the yard, it's winter, so we don't do this. But in the, here in a few months, many of us are going to, who have yards, uh, or if you work doing that in someone else's yard, we're going to go out and we're going to pull weeds. Now, what happens if you go out and you just pull off the top part, the visible part of the weed all across the yard? The yard's going to look really good for a little while, but then all those weeds are going to come back because you didn't actually get rid of them. It's the same thing here. God didn't just send Jesus to liberate us from the things that we can see that make life hard for us, make life hard for others. He came to do that and more, but to reach into the very root of oppression in the world and pull it out. And that root is sin. The sin that lives in each of our hearts, where we rebel against God, where we declare independence from him, where we wage war on other people. We fail to love God and love our neighbors. He comes to deal with that problem. Now, in our tradition, we tend to focus on that second thing to the neglect of the first thing. In some traditions, they focus on the first thing to the neglect of the second. But in the Bible, we see that God comes to liberate us from all oppression. And we need to remember that. Did Jesus liberate Israel from the Romans? Oh, you bet he did. Did he do it like a lot of people thought he would? No. But you know what he did? How he brought Israel out of exile? He transformed Israel from being a political, ethnic-associated group, people group, into being a people group that crosses ethnic and political boundaries that's formed upon union and association with Christ. He made it a global community. How did he bring the people of God home? By claiming the whole world for himself. And then we see it's not too long before all of Rome swears allegiance to Jesus the King. And he's still liberating us from Rome. He's still confronting empire. We see John the Baptist, God's man, 
not just preparing the way for Jesus by calling people to repent of their sins, but also preparing the way for Jesus by calling out King Herod for his sins, telling him he's an illegitimate king. And John gave his life because of that protest, which was part of his ministry. So we today, as the people of God, we, we can't have just external liberation in our theology. We can't just have internal liberation in our theology. God's plan of salvation is for the whole person and for the whole world. And it doesn't always work out like we think. That's because it's more true than our thinking is. You see it? So that's the second thing. Here's the last thing, and then we're done. So God's liberation is not an ideology, it's a person. God doesn't just liberate us from the external visible oppressors. It goes to the root of oppression itself. And then third, God doesn't free us and leave us. But he liberates so that we can serve him without fear. Verse 74. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear. I think about the story of Pharaoh, I mean, of Moses before Pharaoh. He says, God has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they could go into the desert and hold a festival to worship me. Remember that story? God doesn't offer us liberation from our sins. God doesn't offer us liberation from the oppressors of the world so that we can just, you know, be our best free people and that's it. No, he frees us to something. And that's serving him without fear. Can you imagine actually serving God without being afraid? It's actually kind of hard to think about because he's big and scary. Jesus came into the world to take away all that big and scary so that when you go into the presence of God, when you serve him, when you live the life he's called you to live, there's no fear. That's incredible. So, as we close, I want to remind us that we live in a time when maybe more than ever, I don't know, I'm only 39, but I think more than ever, we're bombarded with different liberation promises. Uh, here in our news feeds, our social media, uh, in our schools, in our jobs, our politics, our families. Seems like everybody has a plan telling us how we can be free. Just think this way, do this thing, buy this product, read this book, fill in the blank, and you can be your best self. You can be free from whatever it is that binds you. We, we live with this every day, these promises. But my prayer for us as a church is that we would hear Zachariah's message, echoing Mary's message and Elizabeth's message, 
and we would be reminded that our bondage runs deeper than we could ever imagine. But that God's plan and God's action to liberate us oh, it's so much bigger than you ever thought. And it's for you. And it's Jesus. And he's come into the world so that you can know him, so that you can take a hold of him, so that you can receive him, and so that you can stand alongside of him and call God your father, just like he does, and serve God without fear. Let's pray.